This is Deb Mashik, the Executive Director of Heterodox Academy. I want to know what you think about the Half Hour of Heterodoxy podcast. What do you love? What changes do you recommend we make? Please share your thoughts at heterodoxacademy.org backslash survey. From Heterodox Academy, this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. That statement by Daniel Patrick Moynihan often gets quoted. But if you're a college professor, what should you do if a student believes that all opinions are equally valid, regardless of the facts that support them? I'm going to be talking to Lara Schwartz about that question in today's episode. Lara is the director of the Project for Civil Discourse at American University, where she's also a professor in law and government. She's also the co-author of How to College, What to Know Before You Go and When You're There, and she was a panelist at this year's Heterodox Academy conference. So we're talking about false equivalence today. Give me some examples of false equivalence that you've seen in the classroom when you've been teaching classes. Sure. Well, first of all, there are a few kinds of false equivalents. So I think it's worthwhile to uh, mention the various kinds that can come in. So I think the most common one is false balance, um, the extent to which um, you want to show both sides. And sometimes that's called both sidesism. And that might include uh, just deciding to sort of teach the controversy when there isn't one. So an example of that, that you wouldn't see in a college classroom very much, but um, that you might see people trying to make one in, for instance, to K to 12 education is teaching the controversy when it comes to evolution or creationism. Of course, there isn't a controversy. The more common one you might see in media or potentially in a classroom situation would be regarding um, perhaps creating more controversy than there in fact is um, for something like the origins and impact of climate change or the extent to which uh, vaccines are healthy or not. Um, so saying, well, maybe we should teach both sides. Um, that's one kind. Um, another kind is um, sort of whataboutism, which would be um, introducing a false equivalence where you say that two things are equally relevant or should have equal weight in your decision-making or evaluation of a topic, um, even when they shouldn't. So an example of whataboutism is if you had two politicians, one of whom had uh, once made a mistake and uh, miscalculated uh, you know, what, what the impact of his policy was and one who regularly lied. Um, and uh, treating those as similar. So calling out a politician for lying and someone saying, well, what about that time that Senator Smith was wrong about his health care uh, bill? And you see that a fair bit in a classroom. Um, and the last one is what um, has been called the, the relativity of wrongness or wronger than wrong. Um, which is that treating all forms of inaccuracy or all forms of having something wrong as similarly equal. So there was a time when we all thought, you know, the earth was flat or most people did. Um, and that wasn't true. And um, but it also is in a sphere. 
Um, it's sort of a squeezed non-sphere. Um, and it was um, Isaac Asimov who, who talked most about this idea of sort of a false equivalence that's dangerous, this relatively relativity of wrong or wronger than wrongness, where if you think that it's just as wrong to think the earth is a sphere than to think that the earth is flat, then, then your view of that is wronger than both of those wrong things put together. And that's really, really important in academia, um, that concept, uh, because the one kind of wrongness is complete ignorance and the other kind is, is scientific progress and sort of incomplete scientific inquiry. And it's that habit of mind, that scientific inquiry or academic inquiry um, that can get us to sort of better answers and answers that come into roughly the ballpark that we want to talk about in academic spaces, um, as opposed to sort of, you know, flailing or conjecture or groundless things. So was there a certain point at which you started seeing this problem or has it been a consistent problem? So I began teaching um, full-time in um, 2014. And I wouldn't say that the media landscape or the information landscape is very radically different in 2019 versus 2014. I see some changes. I will say that it's a radically different landscape of information and input and regard for the media, for example, than from when I went to school in the 80s and 90s. Um, the difference being, the broad difference being, uh, partly in the input, the types of information that people have access to, and then a fairly reduced trust in information sources like media, both at this current time in 2019 um, and as well for this current generation that most of our undergraduates are. So a Pew Research report came out actually today, um, or at least the report, the news of it that I read actually today, that this generation, 18 to 29-year-olds, which is the bulk of college students right now, um, is much less uh, trusting, for example, of media and journalists than the oldest um, people. Um, that plays into this false equivalence question because the idea of what kinds of information, if any, is reliable. Is there such a thing as stable truth? There's a bit of a generational difference in regard for that concept. It would be hard for me to measure, though, let's say between 2014 and 19. Um, although I do think there's a this has been a creeping change, and our current students are more aware, for example, of the impact of um, of uh, actual organizations attempting to infuse misinformation, for example, into our politics than previously. Um, this is the first generation of college students that will remember people trying to misinform voters on a um, mass broad scale in an election. Right. That's a good point. Um, so this problem of false equivalence does affect academic debates because you do want to encourage academic debates when there really is evidence on multiple sides of a question and, the, and a debate has been ensuing among the most informed people. Um, what's funny is the very first episode of this podcast was with John Zimmerman, and we talked about a similar issue 
about when when experts are when the most informed experts in a field are having a debate about an issue, then that's a contentious issue that you should bring up as contentious in a classroom, whereas something like evolution um, is pretty settled when it comes to the, the most informed people. So how do you communicate to students that to be successful in an academic uh, debate or in, an, or in a classroom or the, the academic enterprise as a whole? It's important to discern where you're creeping into false equivalents. So I think there are a few things. One thing is, so I'm a teacher, and um, for teachers listening, for professors or teachers listening, you know, I think our learning objectives for any given course, you know, the things that we say in our syllabus or on the first day, what is it we're all trying to accomplish together, are almost always going to inform, um, you know, going to support, okay, that we're going to have to be resisting false equivalence. So if our goal is to know together um, what would be a an economic policy, what would be in a class like mine, um, you know, an education policy that would lead to more people having access to workforce preparedness, something like that, we're going to have to avoid um, kind of worthless items if we're going to meet our learning objective. And then as well, thinking about the objectives of a university. What is a university for? Is it for, is it for the same purpose as um, an internet forum, as a social media forum where people communicate back and forth just what they're feeling in that moment? Or is a university a place where we get better at understanding certain things or get better at discerning which ideas um, work within a discipline? Um, and the answer is the latter. Um, so it's worthwhile getting students invested in the idea, you know, there is a rich tradition within universities of speaking and listening, hearing ideas that feel difficult or controversial, but it isn't a free-for-all. It's not Lord of the Flies. Like, I've got the conch, so I get to say whatever I want. What we're doing here, universities aren't about all ideas matter. They're actually about discipline-specific ways of um or judging concepts and um, seeing if they work. Um, and so the students have to get in touch with that habit of mind. You know, you are going to think as an economist might think, you're going to think as a political scientist might think, as a lawyer might think, and measure these ideas being introduced into this space um, the way people in these disciplines would through objective standards. Um, and so we have to be really explicit about those things, though, um, from the beginning, that we're what we're not in is an unregulated marketplace like Twitter, of ideas. We're in a space where actually the only stuff on the shelves has gotten there because it's met some basic standard. So is that, some, is that a point you make at the beginning of each semester? And uh, how do you phrase that? Or how do you frame that in a way that's persuasive? So I do, um, I do frame that at the beginning of the semester in uh, one class that I have that's really the interest survey class for our multidisciplinary government major, we actually go into 
uh, looking at the standards that various disciplines use and applying them ourselves. So we do an exercise regarding what are the standards that journalistic outlets are supposed to use um, that are the hallmarks of a non-biased and a sort of credible journalistic outlet. Do they have a separation between the people who pay them and the people who create the content, you know, the editorial? Do they have, uh, do they correct misinformation quickly and transparently? Um, what do they have in place? And I have an exercise with the fixed fictitious Springfield, West Dakota Post-Gazette newspaper where I then have them apply those same standards. Um, and they read a, a segment of uh, Bernays' propaganda as well to, to learn the sort of rich cultural context of this and unpack, hey, does a newspaper exist to kind of give us the party line of, of what's good for us? Or is it uh, delivering truth in a certain way? And how do we hold that accountable? I introduce students to the concepts of bias and conflict of interest that exist in multiple fields. So a conflict of interest for an attorney and a conflict of interest, for example, for an academic who has funding to do a study on some issue of economics or some issue relating to healthcare. care. Um, these are different questions. Some of them overlap. But we look at, you know, what constitutes conflict of interest? What types of things make certain um, certain forms of, in, of, of information more suspect? Uh, what should you do as a consumer of information to exercise the kind of skepticism that isn't everybody's biased, everybody's corrupt, but that applies objective standards that says there is a possibility of stable truth in certain fields, and here's what they are for for academics, for scientists, for journalists, for attorneys, for politicians. We look at the ethics rules that apply to everyone from House of Representatives staffers to lobbyists to, to lawyers, um, to jurors. Um, the concept of bias um, infuses students, current students' sense of all things. I've noticed a real change that most students believe there's no such thing as an unbiased conclusion. We work hard to define bias and to suss out the difference between a person with an orientation, let's say a Nobel winning economist who has over time developed a sense of what does constitute the right labor practice, what is a good policy based on her understanding of economics, so we work on what constitutes bias and objectivity. I mean, I see what students mean when, to some degree, what they mean when they say nothing is completely unbiased. There's no perfect test for evaluating whether something is completely unbiased. So um, I think it's fine if students want to believe that everything is a tiny bit, at least a tiny, tiny bit biased, as long as you know the size of the bias that's there. So do you feel like students are approaching it that way? Or do you think students are saying everything has a substantial amount of bias? Well, I, I think what it comes down to is, yes, it's actually, I think I don't think many people believe that it's possible for any human being to completely remove him or herself from whatever type of inquiry um, they're they're delivering and that there's someone out there who's almost a human supercomputer 
that just exists free of any influence. And in fact, one of the things that we look at in one of my courses is at times when people have tried to develop you know, computer replacements, they tend to have some of the same biases that we have. So for example, an algorithm that's supposed to predict future reoffending, uh, co- whether criminals will, will offend again, has demonstrated some racial bias, right? Uh, right. Human beings wrote it. So there you go. Um, it's understanding the differences in types of bias orientation. So an example would be, I could have, um, let's say I'm, I'm trying to solve a problem. For example, I, I want to know if my city should raise the minimum wage. And I'm trying to assemble, and I do this as an exercise in one of my classes. I actually have people vet various potential witnesses for the city council hearing and see whether they meet standards of sort of usefulness, relevance, are there reasons to be suspicious of them? And let's take an economist, right? Uh, One economist is funded by a big uh, foundation run by big box stores, <laughs> which like which might potentially want to have a lower wage for their workers. That's a kind of bias potentially in the form of financial conflict of interest, right? Um, that hopefully that's a very baseline red flag that any student would say, you know, this witness could be problematic in this in this one way, right? But on the other hand, Every single economist has potentially the the um, the bias that they've chosen to focus, for example, on certain uh, on economics as opposed to asking an environmentalist, you know, or asking someone who's going to look, uh, you know, a, a child development expert is like, oh, if all of the parents are working outside of the house, what will happen? Um, so there's a form of bias just in the form of, look, the orientation of your discipline in itself is going to lead you to potentially value different answers or approach the answer in a different way. And then the fact that you're older and um, more distant from having had worked a job like this uh, could affect you. But these are very different types of, of, of biases. One might potentially be sort of disqualifying or suspect, and one is kind of baked in and calls for us to say, let's make sure we have balance, we ask more people, we round this out. Um, and that's what I would like students to be drawing. There are differences between having an established orientation or having a particular disciplinary focus and being a partisan, being conflicted out, being a person who has a track record of getting it wrong in the past. Um, And to recognize that we can't take the human factor where always you're going to be coming with some orientation and bring it to zero, but there are certain kinds of information that are more suspicious. Um, And for the purpose of them in an academic space, um, not treating expertise or extensive experience, the same as bias, um, that these are two different things that they want to tease out. Right. Yeah. Clifford Geertz actually has a quote that uh, a lot of sociologists use, which is that uh, we know that a surgical room can't be completely antiseptic, but that doesn't mean you throw your hands in the air and just conduct surgery in a sewer. 
And similarly, as an anthropologist or sociologist, you know your research is not going to be completely objective. But that doesn't mean you throw away the attempt to be objective at all. Yeah, of course. And so there's a big difference between um, understanding that identifying a stable truth is very challenging and rejecting the concept that there is a stable truth. Right. So another thing that you're involved with and that you direct is the um, project on civil discourse. Does that, does your work in that area connect in some way to this work on educating people about bias and false equivalents? Um, absolutely. Um, so one of the important things about um, civil discourse is that um, it comprehends not only speaking. I think if you say discourse nine times out of 10, people will say that you mean speech. But discourse is a community activity and it's an interactive activity. So it comprehends listening, it comprehends learning, and it comprehends those decisions of where do I get my information? Who do I share my information with? Um, what am I, what kinds of information, what kinds of listening and learning am I doing in developing my opinions and orientations um, as a learner in my career? And so um, part of this, I think, is, is a bit like the heterodoxy concept of, of opening one's mind, saying, how do I inquire? How do I look? Um, part of it, though, is actually trying to do the tough work of figuring out when when is enough? When is your mind closed? So how do I become much more knowledgeable about public health and keep my mind open to that without um, gobbling up a bunch of my time, for instance, consuming uh, vaccine skeptics rants? How do I make that decision about what I'm going to learn to get better at things? Right. Um, and that, right, because the idea is that we're particularly learning law and government. I teach at the School of Public Affairs. The idea is to become sort of wiser governors, make good policy, be be good decision makers or even voters. Um, right. And time is also scarce. So as especially as you proceed up the academic ladder, you have to know what's worth reading and what's not worth reading. Because your time is scarce. You do. And everything from knowing um, what should go into my paper, <clears throat> you know, what I need to know in order to write, to answer this question for my, you know, honors thesis or my, my final paper, and to know when I've, when I've read enough, um, uh, to know the line between open-mindedness to make sure that I'm not being... Um, uh, you know, kind of cl clinging to preconceived notions, but not opening the floodgates to really sort of consuming, you know, garbage and then incorporating it into what I've written. Um, uh, so it's really important. Um, uh, and in this, and at the same time, even in conversations, knowing what the line is between I want to be exposed to new ideas in a intellectually diverse and otherwise diverse learning community and saying, well, that probably stops at vaccine denial or that stops at people talking about, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen, something like that. Um, understanding, you know, how to be deeply, deeply inquiring and having an ethic of inquiry and finding um, new ideas to challenge yourself with, but coming up with some objective standard that doesn't um, 
bring you to what I, I actually would call the trolls syllabus. <laughs> it's like um, you've heard of the heckler's veto is the idea in um, First Amendment that, you know, uh, the government would would shut down speech or maybe a university would shut down speech out of concern that it would rile people up so much that they would, um, you know, that they would misbehave. And a great example with that would be the old like flag burning laws that were struck down. Uh, by the Supreme Court. Well, I have an idea of the reverse idea of the trolls syllabus that um, you would develop some uh, syllabus or some class, you know, limited classroom conversation. You'd burn it up with, you know, if some person was enough of a troll to introduce some idea in, you know, an Alex Jones type of conspiracy theorist, that suddenly we would have to burn classroom time on it in the interest of not being closed minded. We actually couldn't have an education if the troll's syllabus is the flip side, the evil flip side of the coin of the heckler's veto. So teaching students how it is that the syllabi that we actually have, the conversations that we actually have, are somewhat closed-minded to certain things that are really useless to them without being sort of biased or um, or closed-minded in the ways that we don't want to be. Um, teaching them the, the elements of, of what makes something sort of worth bringing in to the conversation and what they can really ignore. Um, I think we all have to be pretty explicit about that and transparent. Right. And one of the things I've done in some of my classes is assign a chapter from Mann and Ornstein's book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. Uh, the main reason for assigning that is so that students understand recent political history. Sure. But another reason is that book addresses both ciderism and media coverage in America and why it's a problem. Um, the book is mainly an attempt to deal with both ciderism. Have you ever assigned chapters from that book or any about any other Mann and Ornstein books? Or can you talk about that? So I've taught um, It's Even Worse Than It Looks back, and I used to do a class uh, called... Um, uh, Congress and Congress and legislative behavior, and it felt really important uh, to introduce that. Um, I haven't I haven't taught that book uh, since then. Um, students really really liked it. I have introduced. Um, they've written some shorter pieces on um, asymmetrical polarization that I think are really important for students to see. Um, it offers an opportunity to reorient students away from the idea that we'll measure open-mindedness and sort of heterodoxy by partisanship and reorient it toward other measures, like whether something meets new, neutral academic principles. Um, because I do think that's really important. Um, I don't think we should have a false equivalence between bipartisanship and open and rigorous intellectual inquiry in academics, because it might be the case at times that one party or some leaders in one party stray further from our neutral principles that we use for academic ideas, like are they verified? You know, we could shorthand it as, you know, the windmill cancer phenomenon. It might be the case in a political moment when one party has strayed further from how people in classes grapple with ideas or a leader of one party has done so. 
And the answer isn't to demand of students and their professors that they adjust the syllabus or they adjust the academic discourse to capture whatever the middle point is in those parties. It's to keep holding fast, you know, Ulysses bound to the mast, to these ideas of, you know, how do we verify and vet information and statements? And if windmill cancer happens, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, in the conversation, it's it's unfortunate. Um, It's unfortunate that maybe maybe a member of one party or a leader of one party has drifted further from us, but we're going to keep our eyes on the prize and keep doing things, you know, as we do them and vet everybody's ideas with, you know, like, like students do and scholars do and not like people trying to win elections do. Right. Yeah. I like to define bipartisanship as, or being nonpartisan as applying the same standards to every party or all parties rather than, committing to reaching the same conclusions about the goodness or badness of each party in advance and then twisting your arguments to make sure you reach that conclusion. You know, that's really important what you said. And I think that today's students are very conscious. They see false statements being made in politics and social media and mainstream media, other places. And they say, we really don't want to do that. We understand we're supposed to support our claims with evidence. And I ask students um, to set goals for themselves around their learning. And very often, first-year students will say, you know, I really have this goal to support my opinions with evidence more, to back up what I'm saying. And I say, that's great. And you actually, what you need to do is you need to start with the evidence and start with the information and the data and the learning and build your opinions from there. They might shift. It's better to back up what you're saying, right, with with evidence than not to. Uh, but we can, of course, with Google, we can find something to support what we're saying very, very easily. And I think that's the difference between just pure sort of bi- an ethic of, of balance or an ethic of bipartisanship and an ethic of inquiry, You know, let's start by not knowing and start by looking and let's hold off on having answers until we've really, really explored the questions in a certain way. Um, What I find when we do that is that more students um, come to embrace uh, views or preferences that might not 100% align with their favorite elected official. Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing, I think. I wonder if elected officials tried it, how that would go. I wonder, yeah. Anyway, before we run out of time, I'd like to jump back to the project on civil discourse. Um, what sort of activities, uh, is that project doing in the, in this year and in upcoming years? Sure. So we have, um, basically three categories of what we're doing, um, We have some public events um, and we have a YouTube channel. So if people would like to look at um, past um, videos, all of which are closed captioned, um, people have come to AU and talked about issues from whether free speech can truly be progressive to the importance of authenticity and political discourse, um, uh, a variety. Um, Free Speech on Campus will be doing an event on um, 
the paradox of tolerance this coming October that I'm excited about. So we have those. We have student-led facilitated conversations on topics relating to discourse, everything from, you know, what is an apology really? What makes an apology real and true and valuable to can you be friends with your um, your burn-feeling roommate when you want to make America great again to... Um, to more, uh, you know, where meaning comes from, to what what place, if any, for example, debunked science or uh, sort of hateful people have on campus discourse, if any. And then I and our student leaders sort of support other um, professors and groups by offering, you know, resources around civil discourse and political communication, um, including, in my case, um, support with um, pedagogical tips and tricks and, and concepts that people can use um, in developing in having tough conversations in their classrooms or developing um, uh, developing uh, productive, truthful, challenging, fun discourse um, in their programs or in their classrooms. Well, I'll definitely include a link to the YouTube channel in the show notes for this. And uh, it sounds like you're doing great work at the project. So I'm glad you were able to come to this year's Heterodox Academy Conference. Thank you for joining us on the show. Um, thanks for having me. You can find a link to the YouTube channel of the Project for Civil Discourse in today's show notes, along with articles related to the topics we discussed today, uh, including false equivalence and balance as bias. My next guest on the show is Charlie Sykes, former conservative radio talk show host and current host of the Bulwark podcast. He also was the former host of the Weekly Standards podcast, which was called The Daily Standard. Currently, he's the editor-at-large, along with William Crystal of the Bulwark Online, where you can find some of his columns. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. And you can reach me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.